Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it. Like, um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode... Uh, carries many titles and achievements and accolades. He's currently the uh, the National Disability Discrimination Commissioner. Uh, he is from Perth, born and bred. He's been a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he's been a successful barrister. He's completed the Perth to Rottnest swim. Uh, and uh, I suppose, importantly, he suffered uh, a life-changing event in his teens uh, that uh, well and truly set his life uh, on a Probably different course to what he was uh, expecting growing up as a kid, but I'll get our guest to explain that in more detail. But firstly, say hello to Dr. Ben Gauntlets. Hello, Ben. Hi, Tim. How are you? Yes, going well, thanks. What about you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks it's, for having me. Oh, It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, ben, we've got a lot to get through uh, in this next hour or so, and I'm really keen to hear about uh, what you're doing uh, in your relatively new position uh, as the Disability Discrimination Commissioner. Uh, but let's go right back to the beginning. Uh, what are you, some of your early memories of, of growing up in Perth? Uh, I grew up in uh, City Beach yep. in Perth. Um, my um, parents actually moved there almost 50 years ago. And um, my parents were school teachers. My father taught at the local high school. Uh, I never went to the school, but... Um, my mother was a teacher as well, and uh, I think they were heavily involved in the local community. and And I just remember growing up with uh, playing an, an incredible amount of sport, mm-hmm. and uh, just the, the the clear skies and um, being very much involved in uh, outdoor activities at every opportunity mm. possible. and And thinking that really Perth was the epicenter of the world, actually. Yeah, a lot of people hang on to that feeling. To this day, <laughs> and rightly so, um, and we'll get to that uh, that that moment on the rugby field when you were sixteen uh, that left you a, a quadriplegic uh, in a moment. But um, you know, growing up, uh, City Beach, a pretty idyllic place to to live uh, and to spend your young formative years. When you turned your mind, you start getting to that age. You know, what am I going to do when I grow up? What were you thinking? Uh, I I, uh, I went to John Twenty Third yep. uh, as a kid, and um, I guess first of all I, I wanted to play sport for Australia. Yeah, uh, I just loved every aspect of sport. Um, I liked cricket um, and athletics, rugby, and I guess I was reasonable without being amazing. But you know, at the time, you just think um, sport is everything. And career-wise, yep. I wanted to be a doctor. 
Um, and I'd had uh, a few kidney problems when I was a kid and spent a little bit of time in uh, Princess Margaret Hospital. And I think as a result of that, I just um, had this view that I could contribute to the world in that way. And I found science quite interesting. And I thought that was, I guess, a, a natural step for me um, at the end of high school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, let's go then to, to you as a 16 year old, um, you know, if you don't mind sort of reliving or at least going back and revisiting uh, that episode that changed your life, um, just paint a picture for us. What was happening? Sure. Uh, I was, uh, like any 16 um, year old, I just never thought anything adverse could happen playing sport. And, uh, it was a Monday night. Um, I recall I had the choice to go to a, a athletics training or to um, to play a, a replay of a match against Scotch College in rugby. Uh, and um, I can remember walked on the field, and, and the next day we I had a quite an important um, representative match. But I thought, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll play um, this match of, of rugby. And um, towards the end of the first half, uh, someone. Um, broke through our line and I, I tackled them and, and I landed on top of them and, and then uh, one of my teammates was knocked off their feet and they fell on the back of my head. And I remember hearing a crack and, and, and the crack was like when you um, remove the aerial from an old TV and this loud cracking sound and mm. I just kind of um, not being able to, to move and, and then it gets a little bit sort of hazy and blurry as to what going on. I remember there being quite a bit of pain and also I guess as time progressed a little bit more in the way of fear because you want to stand up, you want to move and you can't. And yep. that, um is a very sort of unnerving feeling. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean it sounds like uh, the sort of moment that could happen on a rugby field at any time. You know, a fairly obviously catastrophic for you physically but uh a fairly innocuous moments as rugby goes. Yeah, I think as far as a lot of contact sport goes, mm. uh, you can have serious injuries depending on the angle upon which your spinal um, cord or um, your your spine is hit. Yep. Um, so it's not just about the amount of force; it's about sort of where and how you you you're hit, and that can. Mm. Um, obviously cause catastrophic consequences. And when you've got a young developing body, the spines are, from my understanding, not quite as firmly attached. And so what happened to me was that two of the vertebrae in my neck dislocated into my spinal cord. Oh, wow. And when you're lying on the, on the ground there, uh, Ben, are you, I mean, is your body shutting down? Are you going into shock? Are you aware of, of people then starting to gather around you and, and think what they're going to do? How are you going to get off the field firstly? And, and, and all of those thoughts, are they swirling around in your head or are you just are you starting to kind of lose consciousness at this point? No, I was conscious throughout, but you do recall the sort of um, seeing the faces gradually, I guess, become more grave in their outlook. Um, I recall feeling quite cold um, as, as the sort of time went on. Mm. Uh, and there's definitely an issue with there was a significant level of pain. Mm. Um, and then off to hospital, um, what did they do there? How did that all play out? You know, when did you become aware uh, of the damage that you'd, that you'd done to yourself? 
uh, where do you sort of obviously getting picked up by an ambulance? You realise that things are not um, as you would have hoped. Mm. But when I um, arrived in the hospital, I can remember being a, a lot of concern. Obviously, um, um, my parents were there at that point. Uh, people were sort of milling around. But I, I think when it really probably hit home was I saw an X-ray of um, where my vertebrae were relative to. Um, my spinal cord and it was quite clear that uh, they weren't in the position that they should be and that um, as a result of that I've obviously done um, something quite significant to myself. And as a 16 year old who you know had dreams of playing sports uh, at a a high level and just wanted to play as much sport as possible how do you process the news as a 16 year old uh, that this moment has left you a quadriplegic? I think how you um, process it is maybe you just um, you don't really know um, how life went up, and because what you don't know about life going forward um, can't influence you. You just deal with it on a sense of day by day basis. So, in a sense, youth is quite fearless at that point, and and youth is in a way quite fearless because there is that lack of. Um, perhaps appreciation of, of the implications of what has occurred for you going forward. So you, mm. you can, can become quite focused on your rehabilitation, physiotherapy. Um, because your body's still growing, you often get a little bit more um, function back relative to someone who might be a little bit older. Yep. Um, and your body also develops in a way, I think, where you get an understanding of what's needed in terms of making the most out of the physical level of function that you have. But yeah. I think it should be really clear that there is also an element of, I guess, um, luck and fortune involved um, with respect to sort of the support networks you have around you, um, the level of care and treatment you, you receive, the time of accident, and, and just what opportunities you have after you leave hospital are very much... Um, there's some big elements of luck involved it's, um, and I was quite fortunate in that respect. Yeah and uh, certainly uh, turning your mind to academics which we'll get to uh, in a moment because uh, as I understand it you went and uh, smashed out two years of school in one which is <laughs> unusual to say the least. Um, can I ask so uh, Ben in terms of um, the functionality of your arms and legs what has the incident left you with? Uh, I'm what's called a C6 tetraplegic. Yeah. Uh, what that means is um, it affects all four limbs. Yep. And it also it means I don't have any active use of my hands. Yep. Uh, and the best way of thinking of it is it probably it affects your respiratory function that you don't your lung function is not as high. You don't. Um, feel pain or heat in your skin and you don't thermoregulate that well and it also obviously has an effect on your ability to walk or run or stand but also um, in addition I guess it affects your your ability to regulate your bodily functions and so you do have to have um, quite a significant amount of assistance to uh, live independently in the community yeah. going forward. Yeah. Um, how did your, your family and your loved ones uh, cope with all of this? I mean, it's a lot. To, I mean, it's phenomenal for for you to take on board. How did you How did your parents and your loved ones cope? I think uh, it's perhaps um, you don't realise at the time that your loved ones 
are affected by what occurs. But in time, I've started to realise that it affects people close to you as it affects you. Mm. Obviously, they don't lose, in a sense, the physical function, but they lose a a sibling or a friend or a a child um, in terms of how they used to view them, and they have to um, change the way in which they view or perceive you as an individual, and that, that takes time as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, as I mentioned, you really did turn your mind uh, from sport to academics uh, in a profound way, and we'll get into that uh, right after we take a break, Ben. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. Dr Ben Gauntlet is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr Ben Gauntlet is our special guest, the Disability Discrimination Commissioner. Uh, prior to that, uh, an extraordinary career as, a, as an academic. Uh, he holds a Master of Laws from New York University, a Doctor of Philosophy and Law from the University of Oxford, uh, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, among many other things. But let's uh, go back to where that uh, path to academia, uh, firstly, and, and work as a barrister started. Uh, ben, firstly, as you, you're coming out of your spell in hospital, I mean, how long was that before you could get yourself back into a classroom environment? Uh, I was in hospital about six months to the day. Yep. And I recall... Uh, in effect, when I left hospital was when school started, and it was a nice goal to seek to achieve was yeah. to just finish school with my friends and my cohort, so to speak, mm. uh, and that was, um, in a sense, a, a nice achievable goal. And I, I really didn't have any views as to how it would go once I got back to school, but it was uh, important to me to finish with my friends. Yeah, and and how was it? Was it what you'd hoped for that? sense of normality in your life, getting back into the schoolyard? I think what it did and what it is sometimes quite important to realise when you're sort of overcoming trauma or adversity or dealing with disability as a result of a ac- catastrophic accident is, is that structure meant that I could have something to achieve each day, um, which was just to, to, in a sense, get to school and then to do my homework and... Um, and because I wasn't playing sport anymore, I had a lot more free time. Um, <laughs> and that meant that I um, was able to study and to um, pay attention. But that structure that I had in terms of going back to school was incredibly important in yeah. terms of um, enabling me to, I guess, both deal with the consequences of the accident, but also develop life skills. Mm. Um, you finished your last two years of school essentially in one year which is uh, quite an extraordinary effort. Uh, why, did you, um, why did you just want to get it done so quickly? Or, or was it a case, as you said, of having so much spare time you just managed to burn through the work much quicker than others did? I actually don't really recall why I had that burning intensity to want to finish with my friends. I suspect it was I just thought that to um, have to attend another year when that old left school would be... Um, really difficult. Mm. In retrospect, I think probably what occurred was that there was, in a sense, an assessment made each month 
as to how things were going. And, and when it started to go quite well, we just sort of let it roll, so to speak. Mm. Um, and then once it sort of was obvious that um, Year 11 and 12 were able to be completed in the same year, then then I pursued that objective. I was very lucky with some of the uh, teachers I had really took an interest in making sure I was up to date. And at that time, at least, the crossover between a year 11 and year 12 wasn't um, absolutely perfect. So you didn't have to, in a sense, be completely finished in terms of or um, have a great understanding of all the year 11 work to start year 12 because some of the work that was undertaken was quite different in nature. Mm. And so I was able to, in a sense, move into year 12 relatively seamlessly. Yeah. And as you approach the end of that uh, combined uh, two years into one and you start thinking about entrance into university courses, what were you thinking then? In terms of which course took your interest? I always had this burning desire to study medicine. Yeah. So I wanted to do medicine. But given what had occurred, I was just hopeful of finishing. And so that lack of care, in a sense, as to precisely what eventuated, I suspect was a good thing in terms of I wasn't especially stressed as to the outcome. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to finish and that meant that I I think I probably was able to relax at times where maybe others would be uh, quite stressed and I think you also realise there's probably a bit more going on in life than just school and what can happen and so you get a bit of perspective even at a young age trying to, uh, I guess, achieve your dreams. Yeah. So did you actually start a, a medical degree and switch out of that? I did. I I, um, started at the University of Western Australia in medicine. I uh, did my first year there and really enjoyed it and have a lot of lifelong friends uh, from that year. And when I was in second year, I I probably um, looked at the difficulty that was going to occur in terms of the practicalities of completing medicine. Yeah. The level of online content wasn't the same as it is these days in Mm. terms of being able to use information technology to both practice as a doctor and to participate as a student. And I guess I looked at the hours that were involved in other degrees and, and the degree which had the best outcomes in terms of hours and the lowest physical component was law. And it was, I guess, um, deeply ironic because I'd never wanted to be a lawyer in my <laughs> entire life. But uh, here I was then transferring across to do a law degree. Yeah. And you haven't looked back. Once you got it, got it started, uh, did you find that you'd, you did actually quite enjoy it? I think I did enjoy law uh, because, again, it gave me that structure and um, something to do with my time. Uh, I enjoyed learning about different areas. I wasn't, though, someone who sort of dreamed their whole life of being a lawyer. Yeah. And so I have often sort of debated as to whether it's the degree for me. I realise that's deeply ironic from someone who has um, three law degrees, but it was something where I did uh, constantly uh, assess and reassess 
what I was going to do with the degree. But I think the reality of law degrees at the time and now, particularly in the future, is they are a good generic degree to give you options later in life yeah. to pursue different careers. Yeah. And where you are now as a disability discrimination commissioner, um, I'm not sure if a law degree is uh, is mandatory, if it's the first thing uh, you need to have to occupy that sort of role. But, I mean, it is mostly out of a courtroom environment, isn't it? Is this sort of what you thought you could turn your mind to maybe down the track that's not necessarily uh, a, a, a full-time in court or preparing for court role? It's, it's something uh, that law is a good foundation for. Uh, certainly in this role, uh, having a law degree is very, very useful. Mm. Uh, we do do a lot of human rights law and analysis of um, legal doctrines and how law applies um, to individuals. And so it is useful, but not mandatory, as you say. Yeah. Uh, at the time when I was studying law, I don't think at any point I realistically thought that I would probably go off and... Uh, become disability discrimination commissioner. I just I probably learnt from a young age that to think too far ahead for yourself is not always super healthy. Yeah. So I really just took it one year at a time. Yeah. Uh, and and this is where I ended up. Let's go back to 2002 when you graduated a dual bachelor degree, law and commerce, uh, and then off you go to Oxford uh, on a Rhodes scholarship. People often hear that phrase, you know, a Rhodes Scholar or a Rhodes Scholarship. But um, just to enlighten us, I mean, what is it exactly? Obviously, they give them out to people who are uh, incredibly high-achieving individuals. But uh, how do you get one and, and, and what does it get, actually give you, apart from just the prestige of saying, well, I'm a Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> uh, the Rhodes Scholarship uh, is derived from the will of Cecil Rhodes and... At the time, I think there were 99 Rhodes Scholarships given out in any year. Yeah. And they have an age limit on the application, which is um, at the time was roughly about 25. And what you need to have is both, I guess, academic achievement, but also community service, uh, leadership, and um, a fondness for the outdoors. Yeah. And in... Um, I was very lucky that when I was at law school, some of the academics there really took an attitude of just, why not apply and see how it goes? And I did apply and I was um, very much lucky to be selected. And, and then what happens is you get three years of funding to attend Oxford to pursue a degree of your choosing. Yep. But you have to, in your application, sort of outline what you want to do with that funding. So... Um, for me, it was to pursue um, postgraduate studies in law. Yeah. How did you go uh, in in Oxford? I mean, um, for people who haven't been there, it's a very ye olde, uh, classic English town. A um, lot of cobblestone streets, for instance. Um, you know, narrow walkways, that sort of thing. I mean, st- a stunning place. But on a practical level, how did you go uh, on the on the cobblestones there in your wheelchair, Ben? Oxford is uh, obviously, um, it was designed um, after the wheel was invented, perhaps (laughs) before the wheelchair. Yes. Uh, And what that meant was that when you were trying to get around the city, it was 
really quite challenging yeah, in a wheelchair, and it gave you uh, an involuntarily but lovely back massage uh, <laughs> whenever you tried to go somewhere, particularly when it was wet. Yeah. Uh, and so I tend to say to people when people say, what was your Oxford experience I, I think I had more survived than thrived. <laughs> um, I was living away from home for the yep. first time. I was trying to look after myself. I was in a foreign city that's not tremendously accessible yep. and trying to, in a sense, get my studies done. And yep. so within that context, it was very, very challenging. But mm. also it was an incredible opportunity to both um, study and learn from people, but mm. also to meet people who um, were often incredibly interesting. Mm. I mean, and three years, it's a, it's a decent stint uh, in a place like that, isn't it? I mean, apart from the involuntary back massages, um, you know, was it a, as an amazing an experience as you were hoping it would be? It was an unbelievable experience because... What you probably don't realise until you arrive there is the history of what has gone before you. Uh, you don't realise the opportunities you have in terms of resources, but also there is a, a tremendous uh, thirst for knowledge there that you can't help but be enchanted by. And yep. it is um, an enchanting place if a touch cold and very, very wet. Yeah. Your, uh, your thirst for knowledge uh, took you then from, from Oxford on to New York, uh, which we'll get to uh, right after we take another break. Ben, uh, Dr. Ben Gauntlet is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr. Bent Gortlett is our guest in this episode. Uh, ben, you've gone from uh, the cobblestones, three years uh, carving up the cobblestones of Oxford uh, to uh, New York at an stint at NYU. After that, you, you like to go to cold places, do you? Or is it just... Uh, unfortunately worked out that way for you? I think uh, NYU had a specialist master's in the area that I was interested in at the time yep. and uh, the, they, were, um, they offered a scholarship and, and I, I applied for it and it was um, an opportunity to live in Manhattan and that yep. was something that I thought would be a good life experience and it was, but it's um, absolutely correct that in, in the winter it is very, very cold. Yeah. And you mentioned before that uh, one of the things uh, that you struggle with is is heat uh, regulation and and a sensation of hot and cold. How does that uh, impact life when you're living in a place like New York that does have some pretty extremes when it comes to weather? Uh, It was incredibly challenging to regulate my temperature in New York during some of the more uh, adverse climatic conditions. And you try and dress... For the, for the weather, but in often what can occur is you have to stay inside and that impacts your lifestyle and probably your long-term decision whether you'd, you'd live there uh, mm. over an extended period because of that effect that it can have on your lifestyle. Yeah, and so you were there for, a, a, again, a decent stint. Uh, is it the sort of place you could live, Ben, or were you looking forward to, to coming back to the wide-open spaces of Perth after that? 
it is a place you could live, but I think uh, there is a lot of concrete and you do have to, I think, stay in New York for a reason. And I didn't probably feel that with my circumstances it was going to be the easiest place to live. So I was uh, looking forward to uh, getting back to England and then um, getting back home. Yeah. And, I mean, let's get now to your work uh, as a barrister. Um, I know you worked as a barrister here in WA and also uh, in Victoria. Uh, what was your, your area of, of specialty or expertise uh, when you were working as a barrister, Ben? As a barrister, I was really a, a very much a generalist. Uh, I did um, quite a lot of commercial work, but then also quite a lot of what's called public law, which is constitutional law and administrative law. And I, and I always tried to do about... Um, spend 10% of my time on pro bono matters yep. just to uh, ensure that I was um, feeling that I was, in a sense, doing my bit for the legal system. Yep. And uh, and that was always um, richly rewarding, but also at times quite challenging as well. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, any particular, you know, areas of law that, uh, that you found yourself falling in love with and thought, I'd, I'd like to pursue this uh, more deeply? Uh, I think um, you sort of go through phases with the law in terms of areas that are of interest to you. you mm. For a year or two, you might find an aspect of law quite interesting or another um, aspect of law quite interesting. And one of the attractions of being a barrister is that ability to sort of get deeply involved in particular cases and particular mm. areas, and then to be looking at different areas of law um, six months or 12 months later. So mm. I think... Uh, I liked the law more generally than I did sort of having a specific area that I loved. Yeah. Um, were you in the, the high school debating team, Ben, or did you develop your uh, love of, of the argument later on in life? I actually was never in the high school debating team. Uh, I <laughs> that was an oversight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, it was, um, in a sense, in, in part, that was perhaps one of the reasons why I thought I wasn't suited to law was because uh, I was um, very much sports focused and, and my favourite subjects at school were actually maths and science. <laughs> yeah, of course they were. Um, no, look, I've got a, a couple of friends in, uh, in, in that profession and um, I remind myself uh, usually too late when we're sort of 10 minutes into a, uh, a raging argument that I'm arguing with people who do that for a living and um, it's a really bad idea to pursue it any further. <laughs> Um, you might find yourself in similar social situations, uh, Ben. I mean, taking on an argument with a uh, with a champion barrister is is not something you want to do unless you've uh, you've got all your ducks in a row. Uh, certainly, I think uh, when people <laughs> sort of um, argue for a living or debate for a living or uh, do things where they exchange points of view for a living, you do always want to uh, be reasonably circumspect in terms mm. of how. But also, I found um, members of the legal profession often have a very good sense of humour and uh, <laughs> quite funny. So it is sometimes good to uh, engage in a lively debate with them. You're being very, very diplomatic, Ben, which I appreciate, and you probably have to be. So that's all good. <laughs> hey, tell me, you, you you talked a lot as a kid. You absolutely love sport. Um, did the incident that took place when you were 16? Did it in any way tarnish your just that pure love? Of sport, I mean, did you enjoy uh, watching it uh, in your adult years and up to now? 
do you still consume a lot? I definitely still watch quite a bit of sport yep. and I enjoy it. I think the one area that I realised in time I didn't like was watching my friends play up close. Yep. And so I would prefer to watch on TV or to watch professional sport because in a sense that was almost like a different level of um, competition, which was something that realistically we probably never would have got to. Yep. So I didn't... I found that being asked to watch my friends play sport, I didn't find particularly comfortable when mm. I just in the end find something else to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about the uh, the Perth to Rottnest swim. Uh, 2015, you and, and three friends uh, completed it. How did that scheme come about? Uh, I, I actually have to um, claim that, I guess, that I was the instigator of that scheme. Yeah. I'd uh, been in Canberra and I hadn't been that well and I wanted to prove to myself that I was um, fit and getting healthy and to do so I thought I have to get in the pool. I'd um, previously swam uh, with the uh, Peloton Superfins when I was in my early 20s in person yep. and that had given me a lot of health and fitness and I thought getting back in the pool was a way to ensure that I was fit and healthy and getting stronger and uh, so I, I convinced three of my friends that this was a good idea, and I guess they probably agreed. Um, and look, I think the best way to describe my swimming style is glorified drowning. Um, <laughs> it, really is, uh, it really is not pretty to watch, and I think a lifeguard looking at me has a constant ethical dilemma as to whether they can fish me out of the pool or not. But, I get there eventually, and <laughs> what really happened was my friends took the far more difficult aspects of the swim, yeah. and I took the easier aspects of the swim. And, and when I was swimming, I don't think the boat was moving particularly quickly, <laughs> and when they were swimming, it was moving far quicker. Yeah. But we did get there, and it was uh, it was great to get there, but I've only ever done it once, and I think that was because it was very, very rough. And um, yep. it was... Um, I did consume quite a lot of salt water while I was doing it. And, and hopefully a couple of beers at the other end. Uh, certainly at the other end, um, it was perhaps just a mix of sheer relief and um, <laughs> happiness that we'd got there and um, maybe even shock. <laughs> Must have been a good feeling, though, seeing uh, dry land um, after you know going through that well relatively large body of water, if you're talking about it in swimming terms at least. Uh, it was great to get there, and, and once you're near enough, you obviously want to make it, and you do really put the effort in, and I was delighted to have made it, so yeah. it was a sense of achievement, but also um, I, I can remember feeling quite tired too. Yeah, I can imagine. Look, I've never even dared to do it, because uh, I'm a wuss, and um, yeah, I just, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. So you're, uh, you're doing well. Uh, any any uh, any other big physical feats or you know team marathons or anything like that that you uh, you've still got on your list? Or is that? No, it? I think I've probably learnt from you the Perth Dorado swim. Uh, one of my <laughs> shoulders, I think, started to play up towards the end in terms of being used too much, and mm. so I, I just thought that I would uh, yeah take the hint, try and stay fit without being uh, yeah ridiculous in terms of sporting endeavours. Yeah, no, a sensible call. Hey, uh, Ben, we need to take a break, but after that I want to hear uh, all about uh, what you're doing with the National Disability uh, Discrimination Commission. Uh, you are the commissioner of it. 
uh, of course. Um, yeah, just to paint a picture for, for what you actually do and how you uh, help to improve lives. So that's uh, coming up. This is Inspiring Stories. Dr. Ben Gorland is our guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Dr. Ben Gauntlet, uh, currently Australia's National uh, Disability Discrimination Commissioner. Uh, ben, you commenced this uh, term in May of 2019, so uh, it's been a little over a year uh, since you stepped into that role. How have you found it? Uh, it's a great role. It's a role that's a real privilege to undertake, but it's also a role where there's a tremendous amount of need in the community um, Obviously, a lot of people have heard about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, but that only relates to 10% of people with disability in Australia, and there are 4.4 million Australians with a disability, and they have some um, very real needs to ensure that they are uh, given equal opportunities to other citizens in Australia. That's an extraordinary number, isn't it? Um, 4.4 million, you know, up against our, our overall population. Uh, it's so broad, isn't it, uh, what comes under the term of, of disability? It is. Uh, what people should perhaps realise is that 80% of disability is unseen yeah. and that over 80% of disability is acquired through the totality of someone's life. Mm. So um, it is really important to understand that a lot of disability is about, or a lot of disability policy is about increasing awareness and understanding so that we can have meaningful inclusion of people with disability through all aspects of society. Yeah. You've obviously spent time living overseas, uh, mostly in the UK and, and in the United States as well, Ben. How are we going here in Australia compared to other countries in the world when it comes to uh, providing those opportunities and that sense of inclusion uh, for people who have a disability here in Australia? I think we're um, progressing in the right direction regarding disability policy in Australia. Uh, The National Disability Insurance Scheme is obviously a a really important social endeavour, but there are some implementation issues associated with it. I guess there are two areas where I think there are critical needs for Australia going forward. Um, One is in employment. Uh, We rank 21st out of 29 in the OECD for employment of people with disabilities. and we were second last for people with disability living in poverty. Uh, And what that means is I think we have to look at ensuring that people with disability are given meaningful careers going forward. And we have to have our largest companies in Australia really see that as an area of difference where they get involved and they treat it as they treat other diversity characteristics. And, And the other area where I think it's important that disability is considered is is one of housing. We have a lot of older citizens or people with complex support needs having to live in group settings or in congregate settings and they're not living uh, independently as a member of the community and and what can happen in those isolated settings or where people with disability become isolated is it facilitates violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation and that's the reason why we have the Royal Commission Mm. for Disability and we really want to prevent that. Yeah. 
So we have to have do everything we can to try and ensure that we have an integrated society where meaningful inclusion of people with disabilities throughout all aspects of society, including leadership position, is really advocated for. Yeah. So, so where's it breaking down at the moment then if we're well, doing so badly on those two counts that you mentioned? I think uh, we need the um, largest businesses and employers in Australia to see it as a call to arms mm. to have people with disabilities included throughout their organisations. That having... Um, people with disabilities is not just um, about uh, inclusion, it's also good business. Uh, yep. We know that intuitive products which are reflective of need in the community are better. And so I think what we need to do is we need to have a sort of a rethink and in a sense COVID-19 gives us the ability to do that, to rethink how we look at employment and ensure that people with disabilities are um, given not just a job, but a good job. Yeah, yeah. Has technology um, allowed this to, to happen in a more meaningful and, and prompt way, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Technology can be a game changer for people yeah. with disability, but it can also be a, 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 a way of excluding people with disabilities. So, for example, if you have low vision or... Uh, you can't use a piece of software and everyone's able to use that piece of software except you, you are excluded. Yeah. So yep. when we look at designing technology, we have to make it fit for purpose and encompass principles of universality and accessibility. Yeah. Uh, ben, you, um, you signed on as the commissioner for a five-year term, as I understand it. Uh, when those five years are up, assuming you don't uh, carry on beyond that, what would you like to say that you've achieved, what would you like to hang your hat on at the end of that period? I think uh, I'd like to, when people look back at the end of the five years, particularly in the areas of employment and housing, that um, there's been a, a change in approach in Australia in both those areas to ensure that we include people with disabilities throughout those two policy areas. and. One of the critical roles of the Disability Discrimination Commissioner is to also um, shine a bright light into dark places and, and where we've had instances of really quite egregious conduct, I'd like mm. to make sure that they are less likely to occur as a result of the work of the Australian Human Rights Commission uh, throughout Australia. Yeah, and we know unfortunately from that uh, Royal Commission that uh, there are some horrible things happening and um, hopefully we'll see... Uh, less and less of that and, and hopefully one day none of that. So, yeah, God, you don't need me to tell you that you've got a, a mammoth job ahead of you still, Ben. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is a big job, but it's an important job. And yeah. as I said, it's a real, uh, it's a privilege and it's a job where um, there's nothing better than meeting uh, people with disability and hearing their life stories mm. and trying to find ways to ensure that... Uh, they can have uh, meaningful inclusion both now and in the future. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, all the best with uh, your term as the, the Disability Discrimination Commissioner going forward and everything else you've got uh, on your plate at the moment, which we probably uh, didn't even touch. Um, but uh, thank you very much for your time and telling us your story. We, we do appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Tim. It's Great an absolute appreciate pleasure. It. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring story.
Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.